Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. All right, welcome back uh, to our What is the Church class. I'm pretty excited about some of the things we have going on tonight, so let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump right in. Uh, Father God, thanks for the opportunity for us together as the church and talk about what it means to be the church and begin to think and reflect with you about some ways in which we can continue to be faithful and um, just understand the, the, uh, the purposes for which you've not only left us here, but left us together during this time in your story as we uh, witness to your son and as we live out this life of discipleship. And today as we talk about um, your vision for the nature of our interactions with one another, we ask that you would be uh, present in a special way. We acknowledge your presence in the room through your spirit, and we ask that you sharpen our minds, open our hearts, and... Uh, Strengthen our hands and feet to, uh, to do the things that you've called us to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Tonight we are moving on to our second of the three basic practices of the church. Uh, this is the section of our semester when we're talking about this is what we do. But if you were here last week, you know that we didn't quite finish, so I know some of you, like me, if I were you, are blank conscious, which means you want to have all of your blanks filled in. So before we move on to the second of our dimensions, uh, the second, uh, second part of what we're, we're going to be looking at, I want to go ahead and uh, finish the outline portion for our conversation about worship. It's what we talked about last week, and I had a great time sharing some of my thoughts with you. My favorite thing to talk about is God, so worship is like a, directly about God, so I like talking about worship. And at the end there, though, I had a section, so what do we do now? A fairly important section. Now, you would probably draw similar to conclusions to what I had in there. It was just kind of a, let's, let's put the wrapping on the present and tie it up in a nice bow and send it off. But let's go ahead and put the wrapping on the present and put it in a nice bow and send it off. So, before we move on from the Godward dimension of our life together, let's finish by talking about worship. I'm going to put them all up here on one slide. And if you have the notes from last week, you can fill in the blanks. If you don't have the notes, it's fine. You can get them later. If you want to listen to that talk, you can. Even if you don't want to listen to that talk or weren't here, here are, at the conclusion of our conversation about worship, here's the practical piece of things. So maybe you're a practical type person and you don't like all the theoretical stuff. If that's true, you missed all that, so you're fine. Here's what we should do. So if worship is this way in which we acknowledge and appropriately express who God is, what do we do? First of all, I think we ask, seek, and knock for a spirit of worship. The first rule of the kingdom of God is ask, because we remember God is the one who initiates and sustains us at all times. And this is honestly something that I forget to ask for, as weird as that sounds. I I remember to ask for wisdom pretty regularly, because I really, really need it. I remember to ask for faith. I remember to ask for humility. Those are the things I ask for, at least with reference to myself more than anything else. I forget to ask for a spirit of worship, and I don't think I should forget to ask for that, and I don't think you should either. So I think if, we, if, you, if, you're, if you ended our talk last night thinking, I just, I want to be a better worshiper. Or if even in hearing me mention today, think, I want to be a better worshiper. Start with this. Ask God to make you a better worshiper, to give you a spirit of worship. Secondly, approach gathered worship with the right attitude. One of my favorite things that Christ Church does is publish the song set for the next Sunday morning on Saturday. 
They put it on Twitter. They probably put it on, we probably put it on the, uh, on the website as well. And I always appreciate seeing those songs. It's not about, I realize life is crazy and sometimes Saturday night does not lend itself to this sort of thing. But carve out 10 minutes and look through the lyrics of the songs that you'll be singing the next morning. And as you go to church, think about what you're about to say and then go say it. If you add just a little bit to this experience, you probably will get more out of the time in which you find yourself standing here singing songs. Now, I will say um, what this means is not necessarily that you're just, oh, so I just love singing to the Lord. And yes, yeah, you're pumping your fist. That's not necessarily what I mean by the proper spirit of worship. That may be what happens. And that's awesome when it does. I had an interesting experience this last uh, Tuesday in our chapel service at the college. Uh, we, the, the, the worship band was leading and songs were great. Music was solid. Nothing wrong with the room. Nobody's singing crazy out of key around me. It's not like I had any reason to be distracted. But like, I think I was just kind of tired. And so as we often say, this is kind of a goofy thing to say, but I wasn't really like into it per se. I wasn't like feeling it, you know. And I was sitting there, and it's not like I was trying to, you know, feel real guilty about this. I was just processing, Lord, well, what, what should I be thinking about right now? And I just got this sense that the Spirit said, just remember that the words you're saying are true, and that'll be enough for today. That's part of what I mean with, like, the right spirit of worship. It doesn't mean I have to go feel something right now. I need to, if, or otherwise it's a failure. No, it's, Okay, I'm just going to stop and think about the fact that I'm about to walk into a room and sing songs to God in the presence of other believers and probably non-believers as well about how great he is. Okay, that thought alone, again, puts you in a better frame. Number three, learn to catch glimpses of God in everything. If worship is not just a Sunday morning thing, if it's an all-the-time thing, and it is an all-the-time thing because God is always as awesome as he is on Sundays, like he doesn't change when we leave this place, leave this building. So our worship, uh, our, our being in a state of worship shouldn't change. Now the form of that will change. If you're in a board meeting, the proper way to express the greatness of God is not to just all of a sudden start singing, Lord, I lift your name on high. You know, like, no, that's probably not the best expression of it. But nevertheless, learn to see glimpses of God. I didn't plan on going here in a board meeting. Learn to see glimpses of God in the people in your office or home, even if they're tiny people in your home. You can very much, if you look long enough past the craziness, catch glimpses of God in those tiny humans that walk around our feet and jump all over our toes, you know. Learn to catch glimpses of God in creation. I remember it was when I first moved back here a few years ago. I walked out of Walmart up there in Webb City, and I just looked up at the sky, and it was like southwest Missouri gorgeous. And I thought to myself, how many times have I, like, just missed it? Because I walk, walk out, where's my car? All right, boom, beeline for the car. I don't know if you're like me, but I got places to go and things to do. So I don't often stop and look up, which is dumb of me. So let's stop and look up. Catch glimpses of God in everything. Number four, worship anyway. Now what I mean by this has to do with what we talked about, which is that worship often arises out of the most likely situations. And when we worship, we're not singing about how great life is. We're singing about how good God is. We're not singing about how happy I am. We're singing about how much joy is in him and in his presence, whether I feel it or not. So worship anyway. Sometimes we come into this room with, with deep shame issues. Worship anyway. Sometimes we come in here just kind of depressed. Worship anyway. Most weeks we come in here pretty busy. Worship anyway. So whatever the situation may be, worship anyway. There's never a time when God is not who God is. 
Therefore, there's never a time when it is inappropriate to acknowledge and express his greatness and goodness, his love and mercy, his power and wisdom. So we worship anyway. And then number five, in terms of the long term, I cannot think of a more important discipline than this. Fill your mind with true thoughts about God. The trick to worshiping God is thinking rightly of him. And when you think rightly of him, you can't not worship him. If you have a true thought about God, you will be put into a state of worship. I'm haunted and at the same time encouraged by Psalm 10.4. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. If there is a statement that probably ought to be pinned over modern man, contemporary society, it would be that in all our thoughts, there's just no room for God. It's not that I don't like him, I just have other things to deal with. This verse says that that's probably not a very wise way to live. Practically, I want to tell you that in our bookstore right now are a number of books that could help you. My favorite of all of the books that have ever been written that help a normal person, like just a person that wants to know God. You don't have to know all of a bunch of languages. You don't have to be super scholarly. Just a person that wants to think well about God is a book called The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. There's about 20 copies in our bookstore. It's probably closed up now, but this Sunday, go pick you up a copy. There's a couple other books by Tozer in there that are great. There's a book in there by J.I. Packer called Knowing God, which is wonderful. But if you want to start somewhere, get that little square book, Knowledge of the Holy, and read a chapter of that every couple of days and just think about it. Even if you only read a sentence. Read, a sen- read until you have enough about God to think about for the moment and then think about God and come back to the book later. So if you want to be a worshiper, ask, seek, and knock for a spirit of worship. Approach gathered worship with the right attitude. Learn to catch glimpses of God in everything. Worship anyway and fill your mind with true thoughts about God. But that does take us directly into the second of our core practices as the church. And the second of our core practices as the church is what we called last week the inward dimension. And I don't mean like inward to myself as an individual. I mean inward towards the body of Christ as a group. This is the part of our life together that has to do with doing life together. We have the Godward dimension. We have the inward dimension. And then we have the outward dimension, the life of mission, a life of witness. This is what we'll cover next week. And I actually am not going to be here next week. So I've invited someone who will do a better job than I would have. His name is Jim Dalrymple. Some of you may know him. He is a member of this church, although he's often doing ministry all over the place, and so some of you won't have seen his face. He's taught Sunday school classes here before. He's a professor at the college, and he also runs all of our events. So he's a multi-talented guy. And I thought of him because, honestly, like it's really hard for me to step away from a teaching opportunity because, if I'm being honest, and I don't think this is necessarily a good thing, it's hard for me to trust people, so to come up here and say good things. So I wouldn't put just anybody up here. I think that Jim will do a fantastic job, not only because he's an intelligent uh, person who loves to study the Bible and he teaches it well, but because before he came back to the college, he served for about 10 years as the lead pastor of a a church in, I think it's Monticello, Illinois. Is that a city in Illinois? Monticello, Illinois. And so he has himself led a congregation. So I'm sure he has a few different times tried to think about how best to equip people to be witnesses in their normal lives. So he's going to be sharing with us about the outward dimension. But today we're talking about the inward dimension. Do keep in mind that these things don't compete with one another. When you move toward one another, you're not moving away from worship. No, like the gospel and the God of the gospel, the God that is revealed in the gospel is a God of love. And so to rightly be directed toward him would move us toward each other in certain ways. 
So to build one another up is not not worship, it's just a particular form of it. Similarly, it's not that whenever you build one another up, you're neglecting the, the, the outward mission of the church. You're neglecting this witness piece. No, like our first witness to the gospel is how we take care of each other and do life together. So all of these things are interwoven and, and kind of bleed into one another, reinforce one another. Uh, but tonight we are specifically talking about building one another up, or as the older term goes, edifying each other. So what are we trying to do? What is our vision or our goal for this? This is a more difficult question than I think sometimes we think. In any venture, the most important thing for you to do, if there's more than one person involved, is to define what you're aiming for. What's the goal? What's the win? What's the target? You get a bunch of basketball players together in a room, and they're not necessarily going to be a good team. If a couple of them want to win, and a few of them want to look good, and others just want to pad their stats, it's not going to go very well. Part of why, my understanding, and I don't know football all that well, but part of why Web City Football is so dominant is because they very quickly get everybody on the same page just to make sure everybody knows what we're trying to do here and here's how we do it and so as we think about how to do it let's just real briefly pause and say wait a second what are we trying to do and I just want to give you two ways of looking at this we're kind of looking at the same thing from multiple angles the main text I want to look at is from Ephesians chapter uh, I say chapter 2 on there I actually think it's chapter 4 I think I made an error on your outline so open up your Bible to the book of Ephesians and if you want to go, in and go ahead and fill in your blanks there, our job, our, our vision, our goal is to be a corporate giant Jesus. Those are your blanks. Like the goal is that we become a people who just look like a big old Jesus. A people who the world can look at and say, that's, that's, that's what he was like. Like them. He was like them. He is like them. That's the goal. Let me read this text to you. This is, uh, by his own confession, Mark's favorite passage of the New Testament, at least one of it's his favorite. It is Ephesians chapter 4, uh, I'm going to start uh, in verse 11, and then I'm going to go ahead and read through uh, verse 16. Here's what Paul writes. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be, may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. A lot of big old fancy words. This is Paul's fancy way of saying, be a giant Jesus. He continues, verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. That is what we're talking about trying to become, the mature body of Christ, so that when the world looks at us, they see him. Secondly, if you want a little bit more concrete way of putting this, I'm just going to tell you what the verse is and give you this next section, or give you this next line. I think if you want to get your hands on it a little bit more concretely, we're trying to be a community that is characterized by faith, hope, and love. These come from many places in the New Testament, especially 1 Corinthians 13. But in multiple places throughout the letters that the leaders of the church wrote to these different congregations that became our Bible, you have this, this trio describing the type of persons and the type of communities we're trying to become. Faith, hope, and love. People who trust in God 
radically. We, 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 we trust him. We're allegiant to him. We, we believe in him. Faith. That's what we want to be seen when people look at us. That's what we're trying to build up. Also, hope, an eternal perspective that doesn't just measure today in light of today. It doesn't just measure today in light of this week or this month or my lifetime. It doesn't even measure it in light of this moment in history. It measures today in light of eternity. That's the kind of people we are. We engage the world and our own selves and one another in a certain way because we believe that there's an eternal reward for living in ways that honor Jesus. So we're a community of faith, hope, and then ultimately love, the greatest of the three. A group of people who love one another. I'll come back to that here in just a moment. So big picture, that's what we're trying to accomplish. And the way in which I want us to picture this is by picturing a hand. You have the phrase, give him a hand or lend him a hand. And so what I want to talk about using the image of a hand is like spiritually or in terms of building up the body, here's how to lend someone a hand. So we're going to look at the core, which is in the palm of the hand, and then we're going to look at five primary practices that make up the outside of this thing. So talking about the core, before we get to the fingers of the hand, there's two ideas that need to frame this whole conversation for us. We need to keep these things in mind as we talk about the various specific things that we do to build one another up. And the first one is love. Everything I'm going to say tonight is an unpacking and a defining of what it means to love one another. Biblically, love is not a feeling. I loved Mark's, uh, I just used it in the feeling way. (laughs) I I really appreciated Mark's sermon on Sunday. He came in here and said, I didn't come here to tell you all that you should love each other. I'm guessing you get that. I came here to ask you, are you doing it? What a great line. I won't forget that soon. And he helped us understand that love does not mean like, I'm happy with you. I think you're wonderful. It means, I don't really care. It's not about you and whether or not you're lovable. It's about me doing what is best for you, no matter what. So I'm going to say, it's not about my preferences or my needs. What are your preferences or needs? Love is the centerpiece of this whole thing. If you look up all of the one another statements in the New Testament, uh, we'll talk about a lot of them tonight. Instruct one another, exhort one another, encourage one another, take care of one another, warn one another. You find more than any other, love one another. At least 15 times by my quick count. So loving one another is critical in this, and if we don't have that, then nothing else I'm talking about makes sense. Similarly, a second concept that I'm not going to talk about a lot directly, but I want to be in the back of your mind, is the idea of spiritual gifts. It's not a weird concept. All it means is God has made us so that you are different from me, and so that I will build up the body in certain ways, and you will build up the body in other ways. Paul uses the literal image of a body. If, if all I had were a bunch of pointing fingers, I would be, a, first of all, a strange-looking creature and not very effective at life. If all I had was a mouth, which I think sometimes my students tend to think that maybe is all I have. If I was just a, just a bunch of mouths everywhere, then I would be limited in my effectiveness. So Paul, did, Paul says God similarly doesn't give us a lot of people who are really good at teaching. That's not his only thing. He doesn't give us a lot of people who, who are, are really good at mercy, at showing mercy to those in need. No, like he gives us all different kinds of people. So I'm going to talk about the practices that we engage in as a body to build one another up. But what I want you to be thinking about is, what does this look like in my life? Some of these need to be present in all of our lives. Like the first one I'm going to say, pray for each other. I'm not there yet, but when I, like all of us should do that. Others you know what? We're going to do more than another. 
Or, well, I'll, I'll talk about it when I get there. But what I want to do as I talk through these is I want you to be thinking not just, oh, yeah, that's interesting, or oh, yeah, that's true, but I wonder what my next step is. And as a matter of fact, one of the reasons I'm probably talking in my normal speed, which is too fast and a little bit faster than I've been trying to on Wednesday nights, is because uh, Sue Croissant is here. And she's a member of our ministry staff, and she is the person who connects people to the church. And so what she's going to talk about towards the end of our time is just give a little bit of the heart behind what it means to serve at Christ Church of Ornogo. Uh, Many of you already do. Awesome. Some of you go to other churches and you serve there. Awesome. But if there are any of you who are a part of this body, a part of this church, and you're just not currently plugged in, maybe you haven't had the time or maybe it wasn't the season or maybe you weren't sure where to start, we just want to get you thinking about it. She's going to talk a little bit later on about what she does and and what kind of the heart of volunteering here, why we ask people to serve in different ways. And uh, she's going to make herself available tonight for any of you who just say, I want to jump in. And maybe I know where, maybe I don't, but I want to talk tonight. And then in a couple weeks again, she's going to send some materials back that I'm going to put in your hands that can show you some of the different opportunities you have here. So I do not want this to be an academic, theoretical type discussion. I want this, if you are already serving, to be a way of saying, good job, keep doing what you're doing. And if you are in a position where you could serve but aren't, I want it to be just a little bit of a, go for it, go for it, step out, do it, make it happen. So now let's talk through these different ways in which we can lend one another a hand. I already told you what the first one is, it's prayer. We pray for one another. This is kind of the beginning point. One of the most loving things that you can do for a person is to hold them up into God's presence and think about them with God, talk about them to God. So let's just ask a few basic questions about praying for people, the why, the who, and the what. Why should we pray for people? Well, I mean, for starters, because the Bible kind of says to. (laughs) There's this verse in 1 Samuel chapter 12 where Samuel is... Um, talking to the people who he's been leading for a long time, and he's very frustrated with them. And they know it because they haven't listened to him. He told them what God wanted, and they totally ignored it. And there's, this one, there's a lot in this story that I love. Samuel's one of my favorite characters. Uh, but the part that I want to draw your attention to is 1 Samuel 12, 23, where, where he says to the people, Far be it from me to sin against God by failing to pray for you. And that both encourages and haunts me. Far be it from me to sin against God by failing to pray for you, his people. Now granted, he is the leader. And so he has a special responsibility to devote himself for praying for people. None of you should feel the responsibility to, you know, go find a list of all the people that attend Christ Church and pray for all of them. No, that's not what I'm talking about. And I'm not even saying, hey, you are actively sinning if you're not regularly praying for other people in the room. That's not the point. Hear the heart of this is that God means for his people to pray for one another. Another verse I think of is James 5.16, which says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. I'm not going to talk a lot about the confession of sin to one another uh, because we can't talk about everything, but that's part of this. And here specifically it says, Talk to each other about the ways in which you failed and pray for each other. And then another, another, another aspect of the why is not just because the Bible says so, but because God is the primary one who's building us up. Who's responsible for you becoming like Jesus? Well, in a sense, you are. But you are insofar as you tap into what God is ultimately doing. Think about Philippians 2, 12 and 13, where Paul says, I want you to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to work out your salvation with a proper reverence for God. 
If that's all you read, then you think, I guess it's all my job. But he says in the very next verse, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. If you read that verse alone, you'd say it's all God's job. No, it's both. We work out our salvation for he is already working in us. And so when we pray for one another, what we recognize is before I try to do anything to bless you or you or you directly, I acknowledge that God is already active in your life and that to begin this process, it makes most sense for me to stop and pray for you. So we pray for one another because God is ultimately the one who is healing us. And so we pray asking God to do what God is in fact already interested in doing. Secondly, who should we pray for? I mean, ultimately, the answer is going to be anyone. Pray for your family, pray for your friends, pray for your enemies, pray for people you like, pray for people you don't like, pray for people you know, pray for people you don't know. When you come here on Sunday morning, make it a goal for a month straight, so four or five weeks straight, just to pray for a random person that you've never seen before. This, let's just do it all this Sunday. Can we do that? I don't know how many of us are on this room, but let's just say those of us in this room, if you come to Christ Church this Sunday or if you go somewhere else, make it a point to try to find someone who you've never seen before and you don't have to go up to them and like lay hands on their forehead and tell them that you're praying for them. I suppose you can. Good luck with that. But probably just kind of in the quiet of your own seat or as you walk through the hallway, say a prayer for somebody. So who should you pray for? Anyone. Now I'd encourage you to try to come up with some regular sort of routine. Every time I try to do this, Almost every time, I try to go way too intense with it. All right, I'll pray for my, my people every day, my wife, pray for my bride and my two kiddos, pray for those three every day. And then I probably pray for my siblings and my mom, and then like my D group, and then the pastoral staff, and then all of Christ Church, and then all of Ozark, and then everybody I've ever met. And I create this big, huge plan. Don't be like me in that particular way. Just think to yourself, probably a couple of people in this world I should pray for every day. Most likely the people who live in your home. Probably a few people you should pray for every week. If you have a list of three or four people you pray for every day and five or six more people that you pray through once a week and then you pray for whomever else as you think of it, you're doing pretty good. So ultimately, who should you pray for? Whoever you want. Just pray for somebody. And then the last question is, what should we pray? And all I'll say now is, I would strongly encourage you to um, two things. First of all, that you would look at some of Paul's prayers and just pray what he prays. So look at Ephesians 3, where Paul says, that, pray that, that the eyes of our heart will be enlightened, that we might know the depths of God's love. So maybe I'm praying for Aaron, and I'm saying, I pray that he would know the depths of God's love. Or Philippians 1, where Paul prays that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may have the ability to discern what is best. Maybe I'm thinking of, of Jim, and I'm thinking, God, I pray that you just increase his knowledge of you so that his love would grow and he would live a life that is pleasing to you and joyful for others. So use those as a springboard for prayers for people. So the first thing I would say is find a biblical prayer and pray that over somebody else. Or for that matter, find a biblical text and pray that over somebody else. Maybe you want to pray through the Psalms. That's the heartbeat of my prayer life, which is a whole other class for another day, for another semester probably. But the, the center of my prayer life is praying the Psalms. So maybe it's this week, I'm just going to think about whomever comes to mind in the morning, and I'm going to pray that day's Psalm over them instead of me. All sorts of ways you can do this. Just, just pray scripture over people. And the second thing I tell you is, when you're praying for other people, it still is appropriate at times to stop and listen. Richard Foster, who's one of my favorite writers on all things spiritual, has written a book called The uh, Celebration of Discipline. 
And he talks about a number of spiritual disciplines, prayer being one of them. And when he talks about intercession, that's the fancy word for praying for other people, he says, listening to the Lord is the first thing, the second thing, and the third thing necessary for successful intercession. So just listen. Lord, what do you want me to pray? So for those of you who are already serving in a ministry, I see some greeters here. You probably already do this, but if you don't, pray for everybody you hand a bulletin to. Just come up with a one-sentence prayer. Lord, may they see you clearly today. Just say that in your mind every time you shake somebody's hand. Or if maybe you work with the kids, every kid in your room, just make a point of looking at them, saying a one-sentence prayer, and then, you know, managing the chaos that may be going on in the room at a particular time. So whatever it is, and if you, if you go on to engage in a ministry, make it a goal from the start that you're not just going to help them physically or whatever, you're going to pray for them as well. So the first aspect of what it means to help each other out, to lend each other a hand, is that we pray for one another. The second part of this is that we set an example for each other. I remember this story my grandma always used to tell me. I don't know if this is a true story, but she told it to me all the time about this, uh, this, this kid who was growing up with, with a crooked back, very crooked, like way hunched over. And it was pretty painful. This is kind of a few hundred years ago, at least that's what she said. And so there wasn't like a lot of medical procedure for him. And he was in a lot of physical pain. And of course, you know, kind of got picked on by the other kids. And he would often go to the center of their village and he would stare at this big statue of an ancient soldier standing tall and strong. And at first, everybody just kind of looked at this and said, well, we understand that you're looking at him, wishing you could be him. But eventually, they started to get concerned because he would go to this, he would walk in pain to the middle of the village, and he would stand there for hours just looking at this statue. And eventually, his friends and family said, you really should stop. This is only going to make things worse. You're just going to be depressed at the fact that you're never going to look like him. But he persisted. And at the end of the day, what are you going to do? Not let him walk to the one place he wants to go? And then slowly over time, they looked at him, and it seemed like maybe he was standing a bit taller. Now, at first, they told themselves, there's no way. It's just our imagination. He is what he's always been. He may be just growing a little bit, but it can't be. But pretty soon, it became very obvious that as he every day went to this statue and stared at it and thought about it and focused on it, it was almost as if he walked away slightly taller and straighter at the end of each day than the previous one. And eventually, it got to a point where he stood straight and walked home. Now, like I said, I don't know if that story is true. It was my grandma, so you never really know. But I do think even if it's not true, it's true. That we become what we're looking at. That we become what we're focused on. That what we're watching in front of us is often what we will begin to imitate, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And one of the most sobering truths about building up the body is the recognition that one of the first things I can do for your spiritual maturity is to myself be spiritually mature. That is true. And as I said, that is sobering. That ultimately, if I want to help you, I, I need to get right. I need to get well. I need to be walking in the Spirit with Jesus obediently if I'm going to have the maximal amount of positive benefit in your life that I want to have. Paul did this all the time. He often said, follow my example. Multiple times in his letters, follow my example. And he could do this because he typically followed it up with, as I follow the example of Christ. Now, we don't like this in our culture. This is weird to us. We'd rather say, you know what, I'm, ju I'm, I'm just as bad as you are. I'm lame too. I mean, that tends to go over better in our world when a, when a spiritual leader stands up and says, I have the same struggles all of you have. We're all just broken together, so let's just acknowledge it. And there is a place for that. 
Nobody up front or anybody anywhere else should act like they're more spiritual than they really are, right? Like we should never pretend like we're somehow super saints type folks. But at the end of the day, it may not be like the way our culture does things, but we should probably look at this and recognize that, again, Paul was able to say, follow my example. Now, he did also say, uh, follow other people's example. He did also say, follow what they do. So maybe it's not that you're going to be walking around saying, all right, everybody, if you want to know how to do this thing called life, just look at me. Probably not. But it will be that somebody else says, you're wondering about how to be a good husband? Just watch that guy. You want to know what it looks like to speak to your kids with firmness but gentleness? Watch her. See how she does it. And then you go try to do the same thing. It may very well be somebody else pointing to your example than you and you pointing, the, their, their, you pointing to their example rather than them. So, so we, we want to point to others' example and we don't want to pretend, but it also is true that humility, while essential, does not mean that we deny God's sanctifying work in our life. Some of you should be imitated. And you may be uncomfortable with that, but I don't really care because I watch as I walk through the halls, how you interact with one another, and it's commendable. Because I see the commitment that you have to your church body, to doing whatever tasks you perform, and it is noteworthy. And it's the kind of thing that if somebody's paying attention, they're going to see a little bit more clearly how to be a follower of Jesus, which is why I hope they're paying attention. The fact is, we learn best by seeing and imitating, not just by being told what to do. How'd you learn to tie your shoes? Well, it wasn't just that somebody said, Tie your shoes. What? I don't know how. Tie your shoes. No, no that's not how it works. Right, let, me, let me show you how to do this. You, know, you put the loop over here and the, you flip it through here and, and then you try to do it yourself. And that's what it looks like. You try to recreate that. Now let's do, and I'm going to do it again. You watch me and then you do what I do. Now you put your shoe on. I'm going to put my shoe on and we'll do it at the same time. We learn by imitating. It's how life works. It's how discipleship works as well. So one of the best things that you could do if you want to be... Um, a benefit to others is, uh, is follow Jesus yourself. So first of all, we pray for one another. Secondly, we set an example for each other. And third, we care for each other. Now, if you've been watching the, the screens, you see that, that you, I'm not trying to hide what they will be. Prayer, example, care, truth, and share. So if it's hard to remember, just remember prayer, care, and share are every other one. And then you've got ET in between, example and truth. So those are the five practices that I think make up building one another up. And care and truth are the ones that are probably talked about the most broadly in the scriptures. To take care of each other and to tell each other the truth is in many ways kind of the centerpiece of how we do this. So I'm going to talk somewhat briefly through the different aspects of this because I'm trying to paint a picture. I don't want you to think about it as a list so much as a, here's this stroke of color and here's this stroke of color and this stroke of color and in the end that's what it looks like to take care of each other. So we're going to talk about some different elements of this, and I want you to be thinking, is this how I'm wired? And maybe you're saying, oh, I could never do that for adults, but I could do it for kids. Or, I could never do that for kids, but I could do it for adults. And think about the ways in which you might benefit others in this particular congregation or the one that you're a part of. So we take care of each other. The, the fact is, the church is to be a place where everybody's needs are met. Not because everybody came to get their needs met, but because everybody came to meet the needs of others. That's kind of the type of place we're trying to create. I think about 1 Thessalonians 5.14, which is a place where Paul writes at the end of a letter, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. In other words, whoever you are, 
There's something here for you. Dallas Willard, in, in a book called Renovation of the Heart, talks about the church as a spiritual hospital. Here's what he says. He says, the local groups of disciples, in the usual case, will certainly have people at all stages of the journey. So in other words, you're not going to have all really spiritual people, and you're not going to have all really not spiritual people. Maturity, different stages. They can be compared to hospitals with people at various stages of recovery and progress toward health. Some will be undergoing radical surgery or other strong treatment. Some will be in ICU. Others will be taking their first wobbly steps after a lengthy time bedridden. And others will be showing the flush of health and steady strength as they get ready to resume their ordinary life. I like that picture. You go to a hospital, not everybody is at the same stage of sickness or health. And same thing's true of the church. And so we're to be a people, we're to be a place where everybody gets taken care of. What does that look like? Well, here are some, some, some strokes of color to keep in mind. First of all, we accept one another. This is most clearly in Romans fifteen seven. Accept one another, welcome one another. And it was a situation that would have been somewhat difficult. Uh, in 49 AD, so the middle of the first century, the emperor expels all of the Jews out of Rome. And that means the Jewish Christians as well. Church is probably only about a decade, lo- decade old. And most of the Jewish Christians would be the ones in leadership. So they're sent away. And all of a sudden you have the Gentile Christians have to fend for themselves. So they do. They establish their own leaders and different people step up as teachers and pastors and elders and things are going pretty well. And then five years later, uh, a new emperor in town and the Jews are allowed to come back. So a lot of those Jewish Christians come back and they're like, all right, we're back. I'm sure you still need us. So let's go ahead and step back into our old roles. And the Gentile Christians are saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Like we're good now. We don't really need you so much. And as you can imagine, this led to some tension. And at, uh, at a practical climax of his letter in chapter 15, Paul says, Okay, accept one another. Welcome one another. Do you know how the phrase concludes? As Christ has accepted you. If I remember right, Christ didn't accept me when everything was great. Christ didn't accept me when I had gotten my life clean. Christ didn't accept me when I looked the part of a Christian. He didn't care. He accepted me as I was. And so we do the same thing. We accept one another into our homes, I mean, into our hearts. And by extension, I think this does mean we also accept people into our homes. We welcome one another into our homes. The the practice of hospitality has a rich history throughout the centuries of Christian time. And so in the book of Acts, you see that this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, who were themselves quite busy, took Apollos in, this young, fiery preacher, so that they could show the way of God to him more closely. They didn't yell Bible verses at him out in the marketplace. They said, why don't you come over for dinner and let's see if we can help you along. So we first of all accept one another. Secondly, we comfort one another. The idea here is that uh, people are hurting and so you are with them in that pain. In Romans uh, 12, Paul says, uh, comfort those who uh, have compassion with those who have compassion or celebrate with those who are celebrating, mourn with those who mourn. So if people are hurting, then, then, then be there for them. That's what we do. Uh, the Jewish people have a tradition called sitting Shiva. Shiva is just the Hebrew word for sit. That means when somebody's suffering, you just come over and you sit. You don't, you don't, you're, not trying to, you're not trying to say anything. You're not trying to do anything. You're just, you're just sitting there with them. I've experienced this as a sufferer, and it makes a difference. I love how, I mean, some of these, you know, a lot of times older, like, traditional churches get bagged on, and there are sometimes good reasons for this, but... We, we, we lose something when we lose some of these traditions. I mean, I think about stories I've heard about, you know, that somebody loses a loved one and then all of the ladies come over and they just 
fill the couches and knit. Just knitting. Just being with them so they're not alone. They don't have to do anything for us or say anything for us, but we're together. That's comfort. If you want to read a passage that uses the word comfort about a dozen times, read 2 Corinthians 1 later on today. We comfort each other. But we don't just sort of support one another emotionally. We also support one another financially. We provide for each other. One of the most notable characteristics of the early church in the book of Acts is there was no needy persons among them. Everybody had their needs met. Everybody had food on the table. And that doesn't mean everybody had luxuries, but it means that everybody is fed. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul says that those who are wealthy, and by the way, globally, that means like all of us, have a responsibility to not put our hope in our wealth or stuff, but rather to share with those who are in need. This is not like a don't use your money on anything fun. No, in the same context, Paul says that God has richly provided us with everything for our enjoyment. So this doesn't mean don't spend $5 on a Web City football game ticket. No, you give that $5 to somebody else. That's not what he's saying. Enjoy the creation that God has made. Enjoy the life that we live together. But also remember that when you have resources, part of your responsibility is to share with others. We pray, give us this day our daily bread, and then we eat the bread for today and put enough bread in the cupboard for like a year. I think sometimes if I were to send my kids to elementary school and I were to give Claire, I don't know, $20 and say, this is for you and Carson for lunch all week long, and and he comes to me Friday and says, Dad, I'm hungry. And I say, why are you hungry? He says, well, I haven't had lunch all week. You haven't what? Guess who's in trouble? Claire. So I think that we need to remember that we provide for each other. And another great passage that there's not just one verse you can pull out. There's a dozen of them. And 2 Corinthians 8 through 9 talks about how it's not just those who have extra who are called to give. It is those who don't. So maybe you're looking at it going, yeah, you can say all you want about globally we're wealthy. I still have a hard time paying the bills. Can I get an amen? Sometimes that's just reality, right? And we need to remember when we're in those phases of life that we too, in our own way, are called to be generous. Maybe the amount isn't the same, but the amount wasn't the point anyway. It's not about equal gifts, it's about equal sacrifice. It's something I remember hearing one time. So we provide for each other. And then lastly, with the care, taking care of each other, we bear with one another. I'll be honest with you, it is easier for me to give my money than my time. Like I can depart with some flow, with some cash flow. But man, you want an hour? I don't know, like hours are precious to me. We bear with each other. Do you know why we bear with each other? Because sometimes we grow slowly. And there's a lot of people in my life who have borne with me, who have been with me when I guarantee you they had better ways to spend that hour or two or three. And so we bear with one another. Have you ever uh, been frustrated with a person that you were trying to help through a problem and it just seems like they won't just figure it out? Has that ever happened to you? Welcome to church, because that's what we do. We bear with each other. In Galatians 6, Paul gets even more graphic. We carry one another's burdens. Carrying a burden? I don't know if I can remove it, but you don't have to carry it alone. So let's share the load together. That's what it means to be the church. That's what it means to edify one another. So in these ways, and no doubt many others, but that's a pretty good grasp on the essentials, we take care of each other. That is a primary piece of this. And remember, there's so many different ways that you could do this in this particular congregation. Opportunities that you could step in and say, I'm not a teacher. I, I don't know how to talk clearly. I don't know how to make sense to people. Okay, there are still things that you can do. 
If you are, however, a person who can, you know, put together thoughts verbally and doesn't mind doing so, let's talk a little, and it's not just for teachers, mind you, but it is a portion of it. Let's talk about this next piece, truth. So we take care of each other and we also tell each other the truth. Four pieces to this as well. Similarly, we'll walk through them pretty quickly. First of all, we teach one another or we instruct one another. This is not just something that is Mark's job or my job or Jim Dalrymple's job. Go read Romans 15, 14. It says, instruct one another. This is, this is our job. Now, not that everybody is supposed to get up here or get up wherever and, and you know, lay out the truth of Christian doctrine. That's not the point. The point is, across the dinner table, do you know how to articulate the truth of what you believe? Are you a person who can say, I don't know everything about this passage, but I can tell you that here's probably what it's saying. Have you studied? Have you prepared? Do you know? There's an element of, if you've been in a small group, small groups are wonderful, or they're like melting pots of heresy. You know what I'm saying? It could be this great opportunity to talk about the scriptures in a way that enable us to understand and live it well. Or it can be, well, I think it means. 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 And it's just nothing like good necessarily comes out of it, right? So we need to be competent to instruct one another. Second, encourage or remind each other. This is, uh, this is more the thing that um, like everybody does or most people do in some sense. It's not so much like I'm laying out the truth for you as it is I'm reminding you of what we believe. Let me read one of the verses in here. I really like this. Uh, Colossians 3.16. And there's a lot of one another's in Colossians 3. Here's one of them. In Colossians 3.16, Paul says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if you've ever sung a worship song on Sunday, you're teaching because you're saying words that are true that other people can hear. And it's not a bad idea for you, especially if you're a person that maybe you think, I am not a teacher, but I love worship music. Memorize the songs and look for opportunities to share that truth with people. I guarantee you those opportunities will show themselves. And so we instruct one another and we encourage and remind one another. To remind one another is to say, you remember what Mark said last Sunday? You remember what the Bible says in the book of Psalms? You remember what Paul wrote in Romans? Maybe you're not a scholar, but you can at least memorize a few verses here and there and share those with people as you have opportunity. And what you're doing in those moments is you are encouraging. You are instilling courage into them with the truth. You are saying, it's okay. You don't have to do this alone. We're together. Let me tell you some truth to help you move forward. Third, admonish. This is often paired with teaching, as you just saw in Colossians 3, and this one has, the, has kind of this edge to it where it's about warning somebody. So if teaching is, is the, I'm, gonna lay, I'm just going to sort of lay out the truth, then admonishing is warning people against falsehoods. So if teaching is, we believe that God is holy, and here's what that means, admonishing is, I'm not so sure you're talking about God in a way that is true. Or, I'm not so sure that you're living in a way that would please him. Admonish is not, I know I'm right and I know you're wrong and it's time for you to come in line. It's, I'm just saying, I think, like my, I'm not saying I know everything, but I think my responsibility to you as a brother or a sister is, is maybe to warn you that we're teetering on the edge. I don't know, what do you think? Saying that can be pretty beneficial in the right situation. 
I made a promise and received a promise from a coworker of mine. We reaffirmed a previous promise just a couple of days ago. If I'm ever in a situation where I'm working too much and my family isn't seeing me and I don't see it, I will expect you to admonish me and vice versa. Because that's what we do. We admonish one another. So we teach, we encourage, we admonish. And at times there is a place for rebuke. When someone is clearly out of line, let me repeat myself, clearly out of, clearly doing something that goes against all of what the Bible teaches. Not when you happen to think that somebody shouldn't be doing this. Not when this is not your favorite. Not when this is not your preference. Not when this is not your strange way of reading the Old Testament. But when somebody is clearly going against, let me put it this way, clearly going against the teachings of Jesus and the writings of the New Testament. Then it becomes a time, and if they're doing this repeatedly and in such a way that it is harming them and others, then you, depending on your relationship with them, need to discern whether you need to step in and say, stop it. I very seldom in my life rebuked a brother or sister, but there was a time I still remember. It was interesting because he's one of the like sweetest, nicest guys I've ever met, but I, I didn't like the way he talked to his wife. And I, I kind of thought, okay, I, I get that like, this is a thing for me. Tone of voice is very important for me. But I want to be like, gentle and patient and selfless and understand that maybe, they, like, maybe, the, what, maybe what's going on isn't a cross line. But it kept happening, kept happening. And eventually I was like, dude, stop talking to your wife that way. In the name of the Lord. Like, that's the conversation we had to have. And like I said, I don't do this often. I often, well not often, there are times I will see people doing what I think is probably sinful. But if it's, you just have to discern it at the end of the day. You just have to discern it. And very seldom is it a time to rebuke, but there is nonetheless a time uh, to rebuke. And we're not doing so because we like to. We're doing so because if somebody's putting their finger in a light socket, the loving thing to do is to say, don't put your finger in the light socket, okay? Or if somebody's holding another person's finger in a light socket, you smack them on the hand. Say, stop it. Again, In the name of the Lord Jesus. So we rebuke one another when necessary. So we've got four of our fingers, prayer, example, care, truth. And then the last one is something that sort of makes sense of all of this. In a way, the rest of what I'm saying doesn't make a whole lot of sense without number five, which is we share our lives with one another. In the book of Acts, we see that uh, the early Christians got together regularly. They got together publicly in the temple courts. So they went to church. And they got together privately in their homes. They got around the dinner table. They got in the living room. I don't know what all they were doing. At times they were studying. At times they were praying. At times they were eating. They ate together a lot. That's pretty important. Take it from me if you're in a life group. I led life group ministry for five years. I love and hate it every day day I'm doing it. And if you don't eat together, your life group, your small group, we call them life groups here, right? I'm not like confusing the terminology. I'm probably going to be in trouble for that. So we... If you're not eating together, it's not going to work very well. I just, I just it doesn't have to be a big meal because then you know what happens. Somebody ends up bringing the entree four weeks in a row and then they're ticked off and they're not telling anybody, but they stop coming and you don't have any entree. Brownie, all you need brownies or like get those mints. The, honestly, like the cheap desserts at Walmart, favorite. If I was in your life group, those little like... um. Sugar cookies, the soft sugar cookies with the cheap frosting, I could eat those all night long. So good. So it doesn't have to be crazy. 
just put some cups of water out on the table and eat some cookies together. Anyway, I don't know how I got off on that. We're sharing our lives with one another. So the early church met together in their homes and they got together in church. And in Hebrews 10.25, the verse that I kicked off the Y Church series with, the author of Hebrews very clearly states, let me put it this way, the Holy Spirit very clearly states that we are not to give up the habit of meeting together because we cannot accomplish our purposes if we stop going to church and be in the church. One of my professors at college used to end every week of classes, every Friday at the end of the day, he'd say, go to church and be the church. And I love that because the reality is both feed each other. But of course, it's not just that we open up our homes to each other. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says, we opened up our hearts to you. Once you do the same. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, uh, we loved you so much that we didn't just share the gospel with you. We shared our very lives with you. Paul will say to Timothy, you know my way of life in Christ Jesus. You know about my faith, my endurance, my hope. You can't say that to somebody who doesn't know you. I can't say, you know how I interact with my family if they've never seen me interact with my family. You can't say, you know, you know how I pray. Pray like that if nobody's ever seen me pray. And I don't mean like heard really impressive prayers. I mean seeing me actually talk to God in such a way that he's actually there, right? So recognize that all of what I'm talking about assumes some level of, I'm, I'm going to share my life with you. And that may be too much for some of you. And, and listen, I get that. We are where we are. And guess what? God doesn't want to bless you somewhere other than you are right now. He wants to bless you right where you are right now. And so if you're looking at me going, I can't. First of all, I would say you, you probably can. You just need to listen to the Holy Spirit and surrender. You need to let go of control and allow God to take over. But even then, if you say, I get it, I'm, I'm getting there, I'm getting there, but I'm, just, I'm not there yet. Okay, I'm not trying to guilt you or pressure you, but I am saying that for some of you, I think the time is probably ripe for you to say, I, th- I think I'm ready to jump in and do something. I think I'm ready to exercise my gift. I think I'm ready to find my gift by giving it a shot. I think I'm ready to build up the body by doing one or all of these things toward one another so that we might serve one another in love. And as for what that may look like in this particular context, I would like to, if I could, ask you to welcome Sue Crisson up to the stage, and she's going to talk for us a little bit about what it means to serve here at Christ Church. I love it that God knew that we needed the church to love, to encourage, and to serve one another. And I'd like to give you just a little picture of the church by telling you about Aaron and Jennifer Duran. Uh, a couple years ago, they moved to Joplin, and um, Aaron had a job here, and they actually moved into the Holiday Inn. And um, at the time, two men from the church were working at the Holiday Inn as their shuttle. And so they would pick them up, get acquainted with them. And, of course, they said, hey, are you going to church anywhere? We'd love for you to come to our church. And not only did they bring them there, there were some Sundays that Aaron had to work. And um, one of the couples who lived in Webb City drove clear to where you know where Holiday Inn is. And they'd pick up Jennifer and they'd bring her here. And... Um, they got them involved in their life group. I mean, they got them involved in their lives. 
And it, it didn't take very long before um, the Durans were just involved. They attend a membership class. Uh, they were baptized. And um, they decided they did want to stay here in Joplin. But they, they really didn't have the startup money, you know, for rental property. You have to have deposit, and you have to have the first month's rent, and they just didn't have that. And so the people from the church went to right here, right now. I was like, hey, we've got a family we want to help. And so they stepped in and gave the money so that they would have a home to live in uh, that was a little more permanent. And so that's when Aaron and Jennifer realized the church was the hands and the feet of Jesus. And as a result of what God provided, they wanted to begin serving. They wanted to give back. And Jennifer said, I love to serve a church because I want to give back and be a kingdom worker. And so I remember the day Jennifer came back and she said, I love kids. And I was working in children's ministry. And she said, I don't care where I work. Can, can I just start helping with kids? And so it's like, sure. And so um, she, she and Aaron both are serving with first grade boys. And um, they, they love that. In fact, she said, you know, I learn a lot. You know, just being with those boys, I learn a lot about the Bible. And um, this summer, Jennifer had uh, quite a lengthy stay in the hospital. And uh, one of those weeks, we as paid staff just summer gets so crazy we weren't able to go to the hospital and see her but <laughs> I'm looking at Jamie Cox over there several people from the children's ministry just dropped in on her visitor uh, brought her some Chick-fil-a I mean who would want Chick-fil-a over hospital food and um, the, you know they just spent time with her and um, provided meals when she returned home that sort of things well, when Jennifer was sick, um, I kind of kept in touch with her. And, I mean, she, she was, they were having a hard time diagnosing her, and she was weak, and, you know, there was a lot of things to complain about. But I tell you what she complained about to me. She goes, I, I miss church so bad, and I miss the boys so bad, much. And so I said, well, you can listen, you know, to Mark on podcast. Just, just do that. You can keep up with the sermons. But, you know, she said, it's not the same. Coming to church is going to like a family dinner. Uh, you know, when you go to a family dinner, you get lots of hugs, and you get smiles, and you get encouragement. She said, that's what I miss. And so, you know what? That is what the church is in action, serving out of a grateful heart. And so if you want to be a part of that, I want you to come see me because um, I would love to get you involved in the next step. Testing, one, two. Thank you, Sue. I appreciate you sharing. I'm grateful to her to, uh, to come up here and make sure that you know that this is, like, this is, she's not just sort of a person around here that happens to be doing this. Most of you probably know her from her many years of service here on staff in children's ministry. She is now transitioning into a role or transitioned into a role, the, like, connections director, right? And now I'm afraid I'm saying everything wrong. She is our connections director. This is what she does. 
is makes herself available for people to come talk to them, and then she'll get you plugged in. So I'm going to end here in just a couple of minutes so that you have extra time to talk to her if you're interested in doing so tonight. And as I said, continue to pray about this over the next couple of weeks, and we'll continue to make some opportunities available to you. And as she was talking, I was thinking about some of the people who it was for me. And this type of ministry isn't for you. One of the things she said to me is, I don't even want to come up and list the ministries right now. I just want to say, if, you, if your heart is moving in this direction, come talk. And I defer to her wisdom on that. And so th- she's talking about this other whole thing. I'm thinking about the guys who were present to me when I was last junior high and high schooler, specifically a high schooler. Not just my youth minister, but the other men who, I didn't get it at the time, but they were taking time out of their lives to come and hang out with 16-year-olds. I now understand how strange that is. <laughs> and to be honest with you, like here's what I'm thinking about as I'm sitting down there. I have, I have no business being a good husband. I have no business being a good dad. I, did, I didn't see this in my home. I, I had no idea how this works. And I remember when I was getting married, I said to a mentor of mine at the time, I I don't know how to do this. And he said, yes, you do. Because you watched Jason. Because you watched Jimmy. Because they showed you how to be a man. And I'll be honest with you, like I am far from perfect. But I am a good husband. And I'm a good father. Because people responded positively to the call to step in and make their lives available, to share their lives with someone, tell them the truth, care for them, set an example for them, and pray for them the whole time through. So if you're interested in taking that next step tonight, we want to invite you to come talk to Sue. I'm going to pray for us. And if you're already serving or if this isn't the time for you, if you want to think about this a little bit more, you're free to do what you need to do. And uh, and then we'll gather back together next week. Let me pray. Father God, thanks for the opportunity for us to be here. We thank you that, um, once again, one of your strangest ideas turns out to be one of your best ideas, the church. It is confusing to me why you chose to covenant yourself to a group of broken people as the primary way in which you manifest your love to a dying world. And yet, we see in places like Ephesians 3 that It is in the church that your manifold wisdom and love are made known to the humans in this world as well as the principalities and powers in the other one. You have a strange place for us in your plan and we know that that place is properly stewarded when we we build each other up. So I pray that you would guide and uh, propel each individual, each family in the room or represented in the room And he would help us all to think about the ways in which you want us to continue being part of your kingdom and in this particular context to move the mission forward as part of Christ's church. We're grateful for this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.